Well, good morning once again, Bell Shoals family. My name is Corey Abney, and I serve as the lead pastor here. If you're with us at our Brandon campus for the very first time, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. And for those of you who are worshiping with us online from uh, all across the country, uh, we welcome you. And it's always a joy to have you connecting with us. And we are in a teaching series called Beginnings where we are we're looking at the foundational aspects of a worldview. A worldview is simply how a person makes sense of the world in which they live. And so we are really going back to the very beginning of human history. And we've, we've talked about some, some key foundational issues related to uh, how we got here and what that means for us today. And we're, 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 we're adding some building blocks to a worldview that makes the most sense and that explains why we're here and, and the purpose for which we are here. And, and as you delve into the study of worldview, no matter which worldview it is, no matter what worldview you wanna study, every single worldview starts with two foundational questions. Number one, how do you explain the world as it began? Like that's the first question any worldview has to tackle. How do you explain how the world began? And so we've spent a couple of weeks talking about how the world began. And we've talked about the foundation of the Christian worldview and the fact that none of us are here by accident. None of us are here by random chance. None of us are here as a result of complexity from chaos. What we've seen is that there are numerous views of our origins, some connected to alien intervention, some connected to stardust, some connected to random events that result in chaos forming into complexity. And, and what I've argued for is that there's really only one reasonable conclusion as to how the world began and as to why we have such beauty and order in the world today. That's because there is a creator or a designer who made it all so. It's the difference between a junkyard and a garden. Some have a worldview that says, well, the world is here kind of like a junkyard. You just have stuff thrown everywhere. And then through millions or billions of years, somehow all of that matter organized itself into something that's beautiful and complex. And I don't think that's a compelling worldview at all. I think the reason the world looks the way it does is situated where it is. The reason there's such complexity in the human body, the reason there is not chaos in the universe with planets colliding into each other is because we don't live in a junkyard. We live in a garden and there is a gardener. <laughs> the, the, the reason that we see the world as it is, is because the world has a designer, the world has a creator, the world has an organizer. And so every worldview starts with this foundational question, how do you explain the world as it began? And then the second question that any worldview needs to address is, how do you explain the world as it is? So we've spent a few weeks, and if, and if you've missed any of those weeks, you can go to our podcast and access those. We've spent a few weeks talking about how the world began. Today, we need to move to the second foundational question of how do we explain the world as it is? Because if you have noticed, 
the garden, if you will, in which we live has a lot of weeds in it. (laughs) The world in which we live is far from a perfect world. There is natural disaster. There is disease. There are broken relationships. There are evil people. Ultimately, there is death. And so every worldview has to answer these two foundational questions. How do you explain the world as it began? How do you explain the world as it is? And today we're going to tackle the second question. How do we explain the world as it is? How do we explain a world that is so broken? A world that, if you will, is full of weeds. A world that is full of evil and tragedy and hardship. You know, even secular philosophers and sociologists acknowledge that the world is severely broken and that people are severely broken. For example, let me take you back a hundred years ago to the famous British sociologist and economist, Beatrice Webb. Beatrice Webb was a, a, a very significant figure in England. And a hundred years ago almost, she wrote in her diary, she was a prolific writer, a prolific journalist, and she kept track of her daily life and of her career, which was so influential in Great Britain. And here's what she said toward the end of her career. She's writing in 1925, but as you'll see, she's writing about something that she wrote in a diary dating all the way back to 1890. Here's what she said. She said, somewhere in my diary in 1890, I wrote these words, quote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature, end quote. So she continues. She says, now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses in man. How little you can count on changing some of these, for instance, the appeal of wealth and power by any change in social machinery. No amount, here's what she concludes, no amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb that bad impulse. Here's what Beatrice Webb discovered after 35 years working in Great Britain, working with uh, various individuals and families, uh, her work as a socialist, her work as an economist, here's what she discovered, that the evil impulses within mankind are so profound that there are, there not, are not enough social workers or economists or educators to curb this deep brokenness in mankind. She said, not as a Christ follower, not as someone who had a Christian worldview. She said, unless you can first curb these evil impulses in mankind, sociology and economics and education don't really matter. I agree with her. I agree that there is something so wrong in us, in mankind, that it leads to corruption, war, abuse, addiction, and poverty. And you know what? I even agree with her that sociology and economy and education are not the answers. You cannot regulate morality. You can't educate out of the brokenness and the evil in the human heart. She's absolutely right. 
There is something so wrong with the world as it is that we have to have a right understanding about the reason for it, or we cannot navigate around it or through it. And, and today, in a manner consistent with the Christian worldview, a worldview that, in my view, takes the least amount of faith, the worldview that makes the most sense, we, we see that the world began as a result of the creative power and providence of God, a designer, a creator, a gardener who created a world of beauty and order and complexity. And the world as it is, is simply the way it is because of mankind's desire to rebel against this God who made us and to try to do things our own way. The theological term for that is sin. <laughs> and today we're gonna talk about sin. See, I thought maybe there'd be some applause there. I thought maybe there would, no, 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 I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Everybody's favorite subject, right? <laughs> All right, woo! It's the reason we didn't put this on the marquee. Come to Bell Shoals today as we talk about sin. Because no one would be here, including my family. Okay, right? Like it would just be me. But I, I want you to understand today as we're thinking about the about, world about as it is, this is foundational because, listen, all that is broken in us and all that is broken in the world is the result of sin. And if you don't get this, then the world as it is will not make sense to you. If you don't get this, that all that is broken in us and the world is a result of sin, then you will struggle in your trials, in, in your relationships, in your moments in this world when things around you are falling apart and people harm you or hurt you or you do or say something that is hurtful to others. If you don't understand that the reason the world is the way it is is ultimately the result of sin in us, then there's a lot happening around you that won't make sense to you. And so in our study of the beginnings, we have to go back not just to how the world began, but we have to go back and explain the world as it is. And again, the world as it is, is ultimately the result of sin. And, and this is what's recorded for us if you go into Genesis 3. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. Let me, let, me, let me show you how it begins. You see, there's this serpent. A serpent, by the way, that is a, a conduit of the devil, of Satan himself, who we learn in other places is a fallen angel, one who himself has rebelled against God and now is making it his life's work to lead the crowning jewel of God's creative activity to rebel against God as well. And so now Satan is turning his attention to the man and the woman who are made in God's image, who are given dominion over the beautiful garden and the world that God has made. And this, this, this devil, this fallen angel, okay, is, is working through a serpent. And notice this, in his shrewdness, he comes and he asks the woman the following question. Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? To which Eve responds, of course we may eat from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And God said, you must not eat of it or even touch it, for if you do, you will die. Now that's interesting because if you go back to Genesis 2, what you discover is that God never told Eve she couldn't touch the fruit. <laughs> She adds to what God has said, probably because 
what God told her and Adam about eating the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden was so emphatic that in their minds, they came to the conclusion, you know what, we better stay away from it. We better not even touch it. (laughs) And so she wrongly reports what God has said, but she certainly understands that she can eat of any tree of, of the fruit of those trees all around the garden, just not this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in the middle of the garden. And so the serpent comes and begins to create some doubt. And I want to show you today how sin works today, how it worked back then. I want to show you how it works so as to make sense of the broken world in which we live, okay? And so let me, let me just show you first of all, make a note of this, that sin's consummation is a denial of God's goodness. And I want to show you something here maybe you've missed about the devil's attack. Ultimately, all sin is a denial of God's goodness. And therefore, when, when the devil, the serpent comes to Eve in his opening question, I want you to see here, this is so important for you to understand, that all sin begins with attitude before action. And what the devil's trying to do is to cultivate an attitude toward God that opens the door for sinful action. See, sometimes we only think of sin in terms of action. It's what I do, what I say. But, but long before you ever engage in wrong action, you have cultivated a wrong attitude. Let me show you how this works. When the serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from the trees in the garden? See, what, what, the, the devil's not trying to question what God said. He's not entering into a philosophical debate on, okay, did God say this? Because the answer to that, as Eve rightly reports, is of course he, he said, well, at least something similar to that. That's not what the devil is doing. That term really there is a term that is meant to create an attitude of suspicion. Here, here's what it means. Here's the difference. It's not, well, did God actually say this? The devil's not debating that. Here's what he's doing. <laughs> did, did God actually say, did he really say you can't eat of the fruit of the trees that are in the garden? It's spoken with a mocking tone. It's spoken with a prideful attitude. (laughs) Did God really say that? Did he actually say that? That's how it's said. And what the devil's trying to create in Eve is an attitude of suspicion. An attitude of doubt. An attitude that opens the door for action. And you see, we learn here that more often than not, just think about this, we disobey God because of atmosphere, not argument. Sometimes people are compelled to resist God because of argument. They're looking at something philosophically, they're talking about worldview, or they're talking about some specific issue, and it's just all about the knowledge they possess. But you know what happens in most situations? People don't reject God because of argument, they reject him because of attitude. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good character. There is an atmosphere around you that leads you away from God and his good purposes. And here's how it works. Are you ready? (laughs) Do you really believe 
that all that exists today is a result of a creator God. Do you really believe that? <laughs> Do you hear the serpent's shrewdness in that? The attitude that he's trying to create in you. Do you, re do you really believe that we're here because of a Do you really believe that gender is tied to biology? You really believe it? Do you really believe, hey, listen to me, students. Do you really believe that, that you should save yourself for marriage? No one does. You really believe that's, that's God's best for you? Do you really believe that giving generously to the Lord's work as the first fruits of your income is what you should? You really believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Do you hear the serpent's craftiness in that? This is not a substantive argument on what God has said. The serpent's not trying to get you to quote chapter and verse here. Well, yes, actually God said, and no, no, no. He's trying to create an attitude of distrust in you. He will, he will work in the people around you who do not have a worldview that makes sense and a worldview that's rooted in history and a worldview that's rooted in the creative power of God to pressure you to cultivate an attitude that leads you to doubt the goodness of God. And then when you lean into that and you start, well, yeah, did God really say, and why would I do that? And, and as Eve does here, as we will see, you look at the fruit, oh, yeah, that does look good and appealing to the eye. Then here's what happens. Then the attitude that's generated produces an environment for action. And so I want you to see the serpent's craftiness because he's still working in the same way. Do you really believe, let me ask you this. <laughs> You can hear the serpent. Do you really believe that God's will for you is best? You really believe that? You, you actually believe that God knows what's best for you. And this attitude opens the door for action that contradicts God's good and perfect will for your life. And that's exactly what happens to Eve. Let's look at this together. And, and, and so Eve's like, well, no. She's, she's like, okay, wait a minute. No, like, oh, I just can't eat from this one tree. I can eat from the other trees, right? And then here's the serpent. He's created the atmosphere. He's, he's trying to generate the attitude of distrust. What is this? It's a denial or a distrust of God's goodness. And so the serpent, now here comes the attack. You won't die no, I mean, you can hear the mocking in the first part. You can hear the laughter. Did God really say, God actually said you can eat from all the other, you can't eat from this tree. God actually said he put you in this garden and he told you you can't eat of this one tree. God actually said this to you. No, 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 no. And here it is. You won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Here's the attack now, here it is. No, God is trying to withhold something from you. God's trying to keep you down. God's trying to rob you of fulfillment. God is selfish and he's trying to prevent you from something that you will enjoy. Eve, God is trying to prevent you from being like him. I mean, did he really? He actually told you you can't eat of that tree? Come on, you're not gonna die. 
No, God's trying to hold you down because he knows that when you eat of that fruit of that tree, you'll be like him knowing good and evil. And you know what? There is a thread of truth in every one of Satan's ploys. Because if Adam and Eve were to eat of that tree, as we know that they do, guess what? Their eyes would be open and they were open. But hey, can I just remind you of this simple truth? The devil only has evil to offer you. They would know good and evil, but you know what's profound about that? They already knew the good. He's saying, no, God knows your eyes will be open and you'll know good and evil. They already knew good. How many times have we seen throughout God's creative power that all that he has made is good, right? All that he made was good. The world that he made was good. The the man and the woman that he made were good. All that God made was good. Adam and Eve lived in a good world. The devil had no more good to give them. He only had evil. And sure enough, at the moment of Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion against God, their eyes were open, just as the devil said their eyes would be. And now they know not just good, but also evil. Because here's what happens in verse six. The woman becomes convinced. Man, this is so sad. She becomes convinced. Yeah, that's right. God is trying to hold us down. God is trying to keep us from who we can ultimately be. God does not want us to be like him. You see, the attitude generated in the atmosphere created leads to sinful action. And she sees that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She wanted to be like God. And so she took some of the fruit and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame, embarrassment, humiliation at their nakedness. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And now they know a world that's not just good, but a world that's evil. And how did it all happen? How do we explain the world as it is? I'll tell you how we explain the world as it is. It's sin and rebellion against God. And this sin and rebellion that's in every single one of our hearts, listen to me, is consummated when we deny God's goodness. And here's what happened with Adam and Eve. They convinced themselves through the serpent's temptation that they should not obey God because they could not trust him. He's not inherently good. He's not required this of us for our good purposes. No, he's holding us back. He's keeping us down. He's preventing us from having something that we want and that we need. And in this lie, listen to me, this lie is in every single one of us, every single time we sin. The sin starts with an attitude or an atmosphere that questions the goodness of God and it's consummated with a denial of the goodness of God. We convince ourselves in that particular moment, every time we sin, that we know better, that God's trying to hold us down, God's trying to hold us back. He's trying to rob us of some fulfillment that we can have if we rebel against him. And every single time we sin, that sin is consummated in a denial of God's goodness. And as someone said years ago, the devil never goes fishing without attractive bait. 
And Eve's looking at that fruit and she's thinking about what it could bring her. I can be like God. If I don't look at that fruit, how beautiful it is. Can I just give you a little info here? Sin will make you stupid. Some of y'all be writing that down right now. Some of y'all be putting it on your forehead. All right. Sin will make you stupid. Listen, Eve, was that fruit any more beautiful than any of the other fruit? Have you ever thought about that? Like, is there an actual scale of fruit beauty? Like, I've never seen it. Like, like she's looking at this tree in the middle of the garden, the one that God has said, don't eat of it. And now the serpent's creating an attitude in her that, yeah, maybe God, I mean, did he really say? And, and yeah, you know, he's not for my good. And he's trying to hold me back. And she's looking at that fruit and it is beautiful and it's desirable for her because of the wisdom it will bring. But let's just be honest. It's most likely the case that that fruit on its surface was no more beautiful than any of the other fruit in the garden. It's fruit, man. But it was more beautiful to her in that moment because of what she thought it would bring to her. And that is the impact that sin has on us. We don't see the hook on which the bait is set. I, every time I think about this, I think back to, I mean, I mean, goodness, years ago now when my wife and I were we lived in this old house, and it was an old house with old house problems, you know. And we, uh, <laughs> we always had something we were trying to fix. And I remember one day I got up and I went to get some breakfast and opened up one of the kitchen cabinets. And in that cabinet was Captain Crunch with Crunchberry cereal. Because as I've told you many times, the Crunchberries are free and for your enjoyment. And if you just get Captain Crunch without the Crunchberries, you're not doing it right. And you're robbing yourself of extra joy. So you got the Captain Crunch with the Crunchberries, just like you get the Oreos that are double stuffed. Because the double stuff are the same price as the single stuff. And if you're only getting the single stuff, you're doing it wrong. Okay. Yes. There's, there's an eight-year-old somewhere in the room clapping right now. I can hear it. Like, yeah. See, Mom, I told you. All right, so I always get Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries. And I went to get my Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries. I've told you all before. And the box is laying on the side and it's open. And the, and the package on the inside is open. And there's like, there's a trail of, of Captain Crunch crumbs in my kitchen cabinet. And I immediately recognized I had a mouse problem. And I didn't care about a mouse being in my house. I did care that that mouse was taking my Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries. And so I told my wife, honey, I've read the book of Genesis. I've studied the beginnings. I am a man who is made to exercise dominion. And dominion is what you are about to see. Because I'm going to hunt down this mouse. And I went and put all my camouflage on, came back into the kitchen, got a mouse trap. Read online somewhere, peanut butter is the best medicine, right? Peanut butter, don't use cheese. That's a, that's a sucker move, okay? That's only for those of us who watch Looney Tunes growing up. No, you use peanut butter, right? So I put peanut butter on the mousetrap and I set it. And I got up the next morning and I went into the kitchen to find my kill. And I opened up the kitchen cabinet and there's more crunch berries everywhere. No peanut butter and no mouse. And I thought, how did that mouse eat that peanut butter? Well, I must not have done it right. And so I got some more peanut butter. This time I got more peanut butter. And I put more peanut butter on the tongue of that mouse trap. And I set it and went through the day, got up the next morning, came out to the kitchen cabinet, opened it up. No peanut butter, no mouse. 
now I'm questioning my manhood. And uh, I'm like, okay, this is a problem. So the third day I said even more, I mean, I lathered that thing up. I got peanut butter all over the place. Uh, now I've got like broken up Captain Crunch berries scattered on the peanut butter. I made a little peanut butter parfait. I get up the next morning, I come in there, no peanut butter, no mouse. My wife's like, honey, if you want, I can call an exterminator. No, I got it. And in my mind, you guys, literally all day long, I'm thinking about this mouse and how he's on Snapchat and he's posting pictures of himself with his peanut butter and he's texting all of his buddies. He's like, you gotta come over to this house. They got crunch berries and peanut butter and every single night they're feeding me more and more of it and I can see this disco ball in the cabinet and a mouse party and everybody there dancing around and enjoying the peanut butter and this is now the most popular mouse and he's voted the most likely to succeed in his senior class and all I can think in my mind is I gotta get that mouse I can just hear him mocking me and so I did something different. I don't remember what I did the next night. And sure enough, eventually I walked in that kitchen, opened up that cabinet, and there was a mouse with a broken neck. Yeah, baby. I took that mouse to the taxidermist. I said, I want him mounted <laughs> with a crunch berry in his mouth. <laughs> I put that thing above the fireplace, remind my wife she married a man. I'm telling you right now. I got that sucker. Now, it only took me a week to do it, <laughs> but I got it. And, you know, I think, like, I think of that. I think of that. Like, I'm looking here at the devil's tactics, right? How do we explain the world as it is? Well, I tell you how we explain the world as it is. Sin. Like, there's this rebellion in, our, in us, in our hearts. You don't have to teach it. There's no, there's no sin training. It's there. We know it's there. Look around. Secular sociologists know it's there. There is, a, there is an evil in the human heart. And it just can't be fixed through human means. We know it's there. How did it get there? I'll tell you how it got there. Because we, like these mice that we catch in traps and fish, we catch on hooks and deer we catch when we throw out corn on a plot and we sit in a stand. I know how y'all do it, big babies. You can't catch them with your hands or your teeth, you got to use a stand and corn and crossbow. And we're just like that. The devil set to trap with something that's attractive to us, something that's appealing to our flesh, something that's attractive to our pride. And he creates an attitude and an atmosphere that's mocking. God really expects you to live like that? God, God expects you to manage your body like that. He, he expects you to believe like that. He expects you to give like that. God, he ex, re, did God really say, and then we like Adam and Eve, hey, let's not point fingers. Because the scripture is in Adam all sin and in Adam all die, meaning that if you and I were back there in the place of Adam and Eve, guess what? We would have made the same foolish decision. A decision that says, you know what? God is holding us down. And that bait is attractive. And what we fail to realize, this is just so amazing. Sin makes you stupid. We fail to understand that what we do with mice or fish or deer, the serpent of old is doing to us. 
and we don't see it. Why don't we see it? Because like Adam and Eve, we become convinced, sure enough, I think this is an area of my life God is trying to hold me down. And sin's consummation is the denial of God's goodness. And then let me show you this quickly. Sin's consequence then is a separation from God's presence. Man, this is huge. In a sense, if you will, yeah, that metal trap comes down on the back of our necks. There is no sin without consequence. And immediately when Adam and Eve sin against God, they rebel against God, their eyes are open. They see now not only that which is good, they see what the only thing the devil has to offer is, which is evil. And now they see good and evil. And for the first time in their lives, they feel an overwhelming sense of shame. So much so that they hide themselves from God. Here's what happens. When the cool of the evening Breezes were blowing. The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. I mean, again, sin makes you so stupid. You're gonna hide from God? They try. I mean, this is the dumbest game of hide-and-go-seek I have ever seen, right? Like, this is just so stupid. But yet, I mean, again, sin makes you stupid. And now they're, now they're living in their sin, and they have fully rebelled, and they are convinced that they can be God, right? But they're not. And so now they're covered in shame. They're embarrassed. They don't, they don't want to face God. They know that what they've done is foolish. And so the Lord says, hey, where are you? And Adam says, well, God, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. God says, well, who told you you were naked? How do you know this? And the Lord uh, asked them this, and, and uh, he says, have you eaten from the tree of whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, oh, he doesn't answer. <laughs> no, 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 the woman, the woman you gave me, um, it was her fault. I love this. This is good stuff, right? I mean, man, can we not agree that most of the, foolish decisions we make is because of the women in our lives. I mean, no, that's a trick question. Don't answer it or you won't have Valentine's Day. Okay, no, don't do it. Now, this is like so opposite of how God has made him. You're gonna have dominion, right? You're gonna lead your family. And, and, and Adam initially is so overwhelmed, right? We saw that last week that God's provided an equal for him and he loves his wife. And there's this beautiful relationship, not anymore. You see how fast that went out the window. He didn't even answer the question. Hey, did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat of it? And Adam didn't even answer the question. It's just a yes, right? It's not the answer to the question, yes. He doesn't, oh, well, the woman, here, here's the kicker, that you gave me. God, ultimately, it's your fault. I was doing just fine in the garden all by myself. I was naming animals. I was riding horseback. I was doing all this stuff. And then you gave me this woman. Man, that's a bold move, Adam. I mean, it's one thing to blame your wife. It's another thing to blame God who gave you your wife. <laughs> Dude, that's just dumb. But have I told you this yet today? Sin will make you stupid. And he blames God. Well, the woman that you gave me, well, she, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And so the Lord says to the woman, what have you done? And she says, well, it was the serpent that deceived me. And that's why I ate it. She leaves out the part about the fruit being desirable to give her a wisdom that puts her in the place of God and all the rest, you know? She makes excuses for it. Have you ever known someone to make excuse for their sin? I'm sure you've never done that. Isn't it amazing how offensive other people's sins are? 
and how quickly we give ourselves a pass? Well, it was the serpent. No, I, well, here's the bottom line. The Lord says, because you have done this, you're cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Now there's a huge word here that God gives. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He says, the Lord says, he will crush her, strike, he will crush your head and you will strike or bruise his heel. And then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. You will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And the man, to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you and all of your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust and to dust you will return. How do we explain the world as it is? I'll tell you how. We have a cursed ground and we are a cursed people. We now live in a world of death. We now live in a world of disaster. We now live in a world of disease. And you might be sitting there asking right now, what is the big deal about eating from a tree? Why didn't God just give them the 10 commandments and say, hey, do all these things. And if you don't do them, here's what's gonna happen. I'll tell you why. All, listen to me carefully, all of God's words to Adam and Eve were born out of relationship. And the reason he sets a tree in the middle of, a, of the garden with a prohibition not to eat of it is because he is wanting there to be such a closeness between he and the man and the woman that he made in his image that by faith and trust, they lean into the goodness of their creator and trust him more than themselves. God wants a relationship. And the reason he set this whole thing up the way he did is to test the relationship. Are you willing to lean into my goodness, my purposes, right? My provision. And of course the answer was no, we're not. We think we can do it ourselves. We don't think we need you. We do think in some way that you're trying to hold us down and, 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 and hold us back. And so God, no, the answer is we don't fully believe that we need you. And therefore, because God's design for us was to have a relationship with him, the consequence, the ultimate consequence of us breaching that relationship is separation from him. And now we live in a world where there is death. We live in a world where there's tragedy. We live in a world where there's disease. We live in a world with funerals. We live in a world of accidents. We live in a world that's messed up, thorns and thistles and weeds. The creation is cursed. We are cursed. And we live in a world, listen to me, where we return to the dust from which we were made. We die. And the scripture says, it is now appointed for man to die and then the judgment. And we're gonna face judgment before the God who made us and before the God who we have relationally rejected. And we're gonna have to give an account for that. And if God would leave us on our own, we would have no defense. But let me give you a good word before we leave today that God at his own gracious initiative has provided a covering for our sin. And so let me give you lastly here, explain the world as it is. We have hope today because sin's covering is a provision of God's graciousness. 
You see, sin's consummation is a denial of God's goodness. Its consequence is separation from God's presence in a place called hell, ultimately. But here's the good news. We have a covering available to us through God's graciousness. God loves us so much that he's not going to allow us to live without hope, without redemption. God, even in these opening pages of human history, makes it clear that he's gonna provide a way of salvation. We see it first in Genesis 3.15, this word that he's gonna raise up one from the seed of the woman, one who is fully human and we know fully God, who will be bruised by the serpent, but who will ultimately crush the serpent's head, right? He's coming. And so let me give you a little insight as you read the Old Testament. Listen to me very, very carefully. There is one simple question. Every single verse of the Old Testament seeks to answer. It is this question, who will come born of woman to crush the head of the serpent? Who is coming? Who is coming? And as we move through the pages of human history, we learn a little bit more about this person. He is gonna sit on the throne of David. He is gonna be in the line of Abraham. He is gonna come through the Jewish people. And then we open the pages of human history in the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And we see that sure enough, the one who has come to crush the head of the serpent is in the line of Abraham, is in the line of David. And he is Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, right? Every page of this book from Genesis 3.15 forward is answering this question. Who is going to come and when is he going to arrive? And in God's final action there in the garden before he banishes Adam and Eve from it, let me show you what he does. Adam, we see here, names his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And then God does this. The Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. He sends them on their way, never to return to the garden. We often read over that because, you know, God's covering their nakedness and shame, but you know what that's pointing us forward to? A day and a time when he would cover our sin and shame forever. And I want you to know that the first time there was ever death in the world that God made, there was death so that God could make a provision for his people to cover their sin and their shame. And then when through Abraham, God established the nation of Israel, he told them to worship in such a way that through the blood of animals, their sin and shame would be covered. And from that moment in the garden through the period of Israel's history, to the first century when Jesus was born and he lived and he died, here's all that's happening. This is all what God's pointing us to here, that there's gonna be one who sheds his blood to cover the sin and shame of God's people. And that's just what Jesus did for you and me. Listen to me very, very carefully. How do we explain the world as it is? It's because the same lie that Eve and Adam believed, we believe. The same foolishness they pressed into, we press into. The same desire to be God, we desire. 
We doubt God's goodness. We question, is he really for our good? And because of that, we're separated from him. But here's the good news. There, there is a covering for that sin. There's a covering for that rebellion. There's an opportunity for each of us to turn from our sin and to embrace the salvation of God because even there in the garden when God shed the blood of animals to provide a covering for Adam and Eve on the cross of Calvary, Jesus shed his blood so that my sin and yours could be covered and we could become the children of God. And this is why we refer to Jesus as the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where the first Adam sinned, Jesus obeyed. Where the first Adam rebelled, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Listen to me. Where our first Adam ate from a tree that brought death to all of us who live, Jesus went to a tree and he hung on it to bring life for all who believe. This is the hope that we have in Jesus, the second Adam who came to do what the first Adam could not. And therefore, I just want you to understand today that there is no hope for your salvation, your eternal life, except for Jesus. The one whose sin has covered our shame, who has covered our sin and our guilt. You see, this is the blood of Jesus that brings us into a right relationship with God. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you consider yourself religious, but I don't want you to know that religion doesn't make you right. There's only one thing that can make you right with God and that is covering yourself with the shed blood of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's through the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Religion won't save you, good works won't save you, only the blood of Jesus will save you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus to save you, you've never humbled yourself, turned from your sin and embraced his work of salvation through his death and his resurrection, then today I urge you to do that. If you're, if you're a Christ follower today, I want you to understand that the devil will always work to create an attitude of you in you of distrust. Quit falling for it. Live for the Lord. Honor the Lord. Press into God's will for your life. You will never ever regret it. Stop listening to the lies. Stop listening to the half truths. Stop leaning in to these denials that God is actually for you. God has done all that is required to communicate to you that he loves you, that he's for you, that he has a great plan and purpose for you. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life to the fullest. And today, how do we explain the world as it is? All that is broken in the world is a result of sin, but God's given us a way through it by providing a covering, a sacrifice that atones for our sin and our guilt and our shame through which we receive his salvation.